You're listening to the Founder Coach Podcast, a show that investigates what it really means to be the CEO of a fast-growing tech company. My name's Dave Bailey, and I coach founders that raise capital from the world's top venture funds to fuel their business. And I'm sitting down with CEOs to talk about their experiences, the challenges they face, and the lessons they've learned, or are learning right now. In this episode, you're going to listen to the CEO of Edgemy, a genuinely amazing guy called Jacob Verne. Now, one challenge that every business faces is onboarding new employees, and it's relatively easy if your employee has a computer. They can watch videos, read documents, fill out forms. But what if your workforce doesn't have a desk? And think about it. There are a lot of people that don't. Maybe they work in hospitality or retail or drive an Uber. Well, Edgemy is a mobile-first solution that helps deskless workers to succeed in their jobs. And its founder, Jacob, has an amazing story. We talk about some of the toughest decisions CEOs need to make, decisions about who stays and who doesn't. Now, in this episode, I did have some microphone issues, so bear that in mind, and we join the conversation just as Jacob starts talking about where Edgemy started. I really hope you enjoy this one. So a few years ago, I joined a mobile operator with emerging market exposure. And the original idea was to do mobile learning for their subscribers, like a value-added service. Mm. So we launched this, and whilst we had learners taking an interest in it, it wasn't a huge commercial success. And this was a big company, the mobile operator, Mm. like $7 billion turnover company. And a large part of that revenue was generated through a dispersed network. Sales agents, retail stores, what have you. They tried to onboard them in person, and for them to go through like a multi-day training course, And then to keep them up to date, because obviously campaigns would come, products would change. How do you keep people aware? How do you give them the information they need, where they need it? And that was a scaling issue. We we said, what if we just turn the application towards this use case, which is very similar, right? It's still people with a mobile phone and they need to learn stuff. But that turned it from a B2C proposition to a B2B proposition, essentially. And then they, they said, okay, let's test if this actually has an effect. And so, you know, we ran a big pilot, they analyzed the results and Edgemy trained sales agents, they increased their monthly revenue generation by 12%. In, in a multi-billion dollar company, I realized we're really solving a problem here. Surely there are many others have the same problems, but I just couldn't see anyone out there really addressing the issue. So let's say that was 1.0 of what we're doing today. Today, the product is completely different, obviously entirely digital, but we're still addressing the same problem. So there was this pivot from mobile learning into a B2B training play. What do you think are some of the misconceptions founders have about pivots? Maybe that they're easy or straightforward, or even that there will be just one pivot. It's like, Mm. we'll pivot, and then it's going to work, and then you'll pivot again and again. I think it takes a lot of guts. I mean, you're not an entrepreneur if you're not willing to take risks, but you do have to be quite ruthless. And by the way, maybe today I share lots of like, sound advice. It doesn't mean that I I did those things myself. And I think maybe the most important, let's say, pivot or refocus we did was when it was no longer my choice. And it's really hard to take very difficult decisions when you don't have to do it because it's hard to kill your darlings. What if we could just keep that going and keep that going, keep that going? And we were doing too many things at one point. I told you where it started. Then in 2016, Edgemy was about to, there was a lot of change in the company. I was helping them sell, unwind, close down 
lots of different initiatives that have been started in the preceding couple of years. And EdgyMe was one thing that I started. And we had a, a big strategic investor that was interested. And we were a tiny, tiny, tiny little internal startup. I don't think that was a good match. Clearly, it wasn't a good match in hindsight. It was too complicated. They did so much due diligence, like discussions lasted for a year. And remember, there was nothing there really, inception of an idea. And then I remember waking up, Midsummer's Eve, it's a big thing for us Swedes, around the 20th of June. First thing I see on my phone is an email overnight from Japan saying, sorry, first time since 1963, the investment committee did not approve uh, a case that we've put forward. So we're pulling out, sorry, you know, maybe we can work in the future. And you know that from investors, like, <laughs> wow, thanks. And second thing I see is, oh, Brexit, same day. That was surprising. What the hell do I do now? And at the time we were still funded by Millicom. We were living, what do you say? Living off a prayer. My boss yeah. at the time was basically funding us out of the finance slush fund. We really didn't have a budget and he was just keeping us alive so they could flip us. I was like, I'm not prepared to leave this. I so believe in this. I'm so invested. I'll do anything. So I remember there waking up early in the morning, phoning my dad, like this happened. <laughs> Are you, do you have any money? Are you willing to like, I'm all oh in. <laughs> what can we do here? And then spending like Midsummer's Eve firefighting and thinking about what do I do now? It's the end of this dream. Like it, it can't happen. So I immediately like set up a, a meeting with the boss, the CFO at the company for when I got back. Mm -hmm. I got into the boardroom. I was like, I'm not, I'm not ready to give up. Like, I just want to keep going with this thing. Can I buy it? Like, and we ended up doing a, a fair deal at the time. So I did a management buyout. And now I don't even remember how we got here. That was the pivot. Yes, we were doing too many things at the time. We were doing this thing that we've been talking about of B2B to dispersed workforce. We were still doing live language learning out of our 25-person office in, in, in Bogota. You were running both businesses at the same time for some period of time. Yeah, yeah. And then it very quickly stopped doing it because I had to. I've only yep. shared a fraction of the various projects right. we were running at the time because very opportunistic. The biggest thing we did wrong, and I think many other founders that are not going to do that mistake, is you have this one idea, you go after it. Maybe it's not entirely right in the beginning, you pivot. What we did was we got into a whole new area that was unexplored and said, oh, why don't we do this too? So we did lots of different things in digital learning and they had different merits, I suppose. Mm -hmm. The one that maybe had almost shown the least is what we're doing today because we were too thinly spread. So we knew mm -hmm. there was something there. We hadn't fully gone after it. We'd put a lot more time, effort, money into doing online tutoring, especially in Colombia, and it was servicing Latin America. It was generating revenue, not lots, but also not insignificant. And I remember standing there saying, okay, this is the money I can raise at this stage. There's no way I can do these three things. Right. All right. I'm going to have to focus on one thing and one thing only. And that was pretty brutal uh, because that meant if we were 45 people before 50, five came out of this. Wow. What was it like? The hardest thing I find personally in, in running a company is letting people go. Yeah. People you care about, people that have been part of the journey, people that have really contributed, that believed in, in you and the mission. And then you say, well, sorry, this is where the journey ends for you and we're going to continue. That's, of course, always tough. But there was no alternative. 
There really was no alternative. Do you remember the conversation you had with the team? Yeah, I do. A big part of the team was sitting in different countries. But I remember the very strong connections I had with some of those people that I'd been working with. And I, I found they were extremely understanding and particularly like a, a call out to my fellow Jacob, who was running the whole Colombian operation. And he was so invested and doing an amazing job. And then I tell him, you know, the whole thing that you've built over here, we're not going to be able to continue with that. So you're going to have to close it. And that was hard, of course, but he was like, I get it. And he did it. And he stayed until the very end, closed the door behind him. Wow. Yeah. You know, behind every successful startup, there are so many unsung heroes on there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fast forward from back against the wall to selling into big corporates like Uber, Deliveroo, Vodafone, your roster of clients is impressive. What did you need to do organizationally to make that happen? First thing was focus. And probably there is one piece of advice I have for like aspiring entrepreneurs is focus. It's hard to do both. And as an entrepreneur, you're also like very willing to go after lots of opportunities. I really have to rein myself in, but focus was yeah. important. Yeah. Focus is the courage to say no to something that yeah. is also... Also interesting, also attractive. Yeah, yeah exactly. Focus was the key thing. And then building a team of specialists. So what we had before were fewer specialists and many generalists. And then you have to outsource a lot of the knowledge creation, a lot of the really vital infrastructure. I think that was really important to say, like, we need to own this and we need to have the people on the team that can really build it where we don't rely on anyone else. And then maybe the third component is luck. Mm. of having that early break where we identify the problem, they became the first customer. They said, well, actually, we need something. So we kept building around that. Ah. Then we had another one who came through somehow, and the third customer was Uber. And that was important. <laughs> yeah. Slight understatement. Yeah, we often conceptualize luck as events, but actually a lot of luck is who luck. Yeah, totally. The analogy I tend to do, you can do it for football, you can do it for ice hockey, whatever. It's very hard to strike if you're inside your own penalty box, right? Yeah. And sometimes you spend the whole game playing in offense and, you know, you never get the ball. You don't score. If you're not there, you're certainly not going to score, right? So you have right. to position yourself so you can score. And, and that's very true. That. And that's, that's not just luck, right? And so you have to be there. Back in my school days when I was playing football, goal hanging, you're not allowed to do that. But actually in life, goal hanging... <laughs> Yeah, it's a great strategy. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. It's probably always important. Early days, you're looking for your break. The break isn't going to come and find you at home, right? So you have to be out there and you have to do some stuff where last time it wasn't great ROI traveling to the US to attend this conference. The next time you go, it's just this massively important event in the company's history. And I've had those two. Yeah. What's the special thing that you can do? for a company like Uber or Airbnb that has a distributed team? First thing to say is probably, if you sell into other software companies, maybe they can build what you're doing. Most likely they won't because it just doesn't make sense. Uh, like they have a different core competence. They focus on that. That's what made them good. Uber is a learning company. That is not what they do. It's not what they intend to be. They're very good at doing what they do. Airbnb the same, other customers the same. So trying to build something is unlikely to happen unless it's mm -hmm. a massive part of their business model, I would say, or an incredibly big cost. We're quite focused on demand industry. The good thing about that is they're early in their journeys too, as companies. 
they hustle too and you do what you have to and i'll just put some stuff together using uh, a plaster and it works for them just in the beginning and then it starts breaking down and that's where we come in and they say we used to do these things in person or we used to send an email around with a 30 page powerpoint no one is reading it no one's even open the email so no one's learning anything or we send them a text message or we ask them to come into a center they're not going to do that right and you can't scale that way so that's typically where we've come in and said we can do this at scale much better with much better results that's interesting and with uber you're, you're training up the drivers i presume yeah yeah right and then airbnb the hosts the hosts the hosts mm. i mean uber is millions of drivers so this is a big operation that is a big operation yeah and the Uber one is really interesting. We've had a very good and very close collaboration. I think it's grown over the years. It actually started in, in Johannesburg and we had to prove it in a pilot and they'd send people to us, they'd send people to the normal way of doing things and then they'd compare it and say, is this working? And it was working. They were saving time, money, results were better in terms of quality and productivity. And then it started spreading from internal champions and they found new use cases, new geographies. Now we work with them all over the world on truly global projects. And we have interactions in many countries, but we do a lot of things with them in HQ too, even around product development. Like how can we do things even better? And you have not positioned around training. You've actually created a new category. Tell me about the process you came to defining workforce success as a category. First, shout out to my lead investor, Pietro at Connect. He's the one who brought up the idea. He, he, he loves category design. I totally bought into it. He gave me a book to read. What was the book? Play Bigger. That's a great book, by the way. What really like, made me realize was already knowing that we're doing something bigger than what the label says. And the label said mobile learning or micro learning. It's very specific. But we were always doing more than that. Even in the first product, we would train people using micro-learning, i.e. bite-sized information, typically delivered to a mobile device. But there was also a feature that enabled companies to communicate with their dispersed workforce. So we were about more than just training people. It was about informing people, delivering information so they could be successful at their job, train them up, provide them information, keep giving them the right information because information becomes obsolete over time and drive that engagement. That's what I bought into. Is it really a global problem? Yes, it is. 80% of the global working population are deskless, inverted wow. commas. Yeah. That's 2.7 billion people who are not working the way maybe most people on this podcast are working. We're sitting in front of a computer. Yes, at the moment, because of COVID, we're working from home, probably at a desk for those of us lucky enough to work at a desk, but there are all these other industries from gig, retail, hospitality, logistics, facilities, manufacturing, healthcare, agriculture. So these people, they have the same issue, right? Like, how are you going to do all these things at scale? How are you going to inform them at scale? Yeah. But obviously people are not using Slack if you are working at WH Smith or your healthcare worker or you're an Uber driver. How do they do things? Well, either they don't at all, that's terrible, or they try to do it in a very physical way, or even in more, let's say, mature companies, they've been using combination of some old LMS learning management system and some other comms channel. That's also not great. So that's really what we focused in on. So we have all of these people, vast majority of global working population, like they're deskless. They need something different. Why is there not a great solution for it? 
And so we basically came up and designed this category that we call workforce success. And that's about empowering that modern worker, that deskless worker right. to be successful in their job. And the way to be successful is to be empowered, having the information you need to do your job well. You can do surveys in, ah. in, in the tool too. So you can actually listen to people and hear what they have to say about the things that you're doing or come up with suggestions. And then you can further improve. So it becomes like a posted flywheel or virtuous circle for a company. So it's good for the end user, the employee or, you know, the worker. And it's, it's good for the company. Firstly, I can see it's a very compelling proposition as well as on the product side, you're also differentiating in how you segment the market. You find a unique way of cutting up this market that no one else has thought about. I certainly haven't thought about it. And yet it's hiding in plain sight. Not any longer. Not any longer. You raised from a Silicon Valley fund, Valo Ventures. What was it like to raise in COVID? And tell me about the experience. Yeah, it was interesting <laughs> and stressful, as it always is. So everyone who's done fundraising, like I'm not telling you anything new. Uh, we've all been there. I guess the context was different this time. We had raised a seed round from Connect Ventures, uh, $1.8 million with an angel. And that was, you know, typical 18-month runway. And we decided that we're going to fundraise Q1 2020. That was the plan. That's how we spent the money. Initially, I wanted to do in, in December 19. And this is a classic mistake. I'm sure others are doing the same. I just need this thing to happen too. Right. Because it's going to make us a lot more attractive. And we're going to hit that important milestone. And everything is going to be easier. And, you know, you just like postpone and then it actually doesn't happen the next month. You know, it was supposed to happen in December. It didn't happen in January. It started happening in February, but it's a hard decision to make. Like, yeah. okay, we may not optimize outcome here, but are we willing to take the risk of waiting? And I think normally you shouldn't wait, actually. Was there a moment where you were really considering cutting costs to extend your runway? No, oh, I did. Oh, I did. So it was like coming into this February, things starting to look better. Okay, good. Then COVID. Oof. And, uh, and it was just like reactions and impulses from companies that affected some companies more than others. Yeah. In our case, Uber was and is our biggest customer. When people start using Ubers less, there's less volume to us. And so our revenue was impacted in March. So it, it dropped. That was like when we're really going to start growing massively. Everything was set up to really have an acceleration. Instead, it decelerated very quickly in, in March. I ran a big company through the last recession. And that was a tricky one too. And that was in media, advertising budgets being slashed. So we had to do some really hard decisions. Mm. This time I was like, we don't know where this is going to head. The worst thing to do is wait and see, because then you have no control any longer. Suddenly, you know, you just run out of runway. So I took an early decision in March, like, okay, stop all sp spending money basically on anything that wasn't absolutely relevant. April, things got even worse. And there were basically two ways to go about it. We let people go and maybe many people go. Or we come together collectively and in solidarity with each other, we all take a cut. And what we did was a combination of the two. We furloughed a few people and then everyone agreed to go to 80% working hours and, and pay across the board. Mm -hmm. If someone can't do it, we have to work around it. But this is a way for all of us to continue after this. Because what will happen is if we don't cut cost, this is all going to end very badly. Mm. So revenues were down probably like 50% on, on February when we came to April. 
I reduced cost by 40%. And then May came. And here we were a little bit lucky, but also, you know, again, well positioned. Uber decided to deliver COVID training to all their drivers, all their major markets using Edgemi. So we went from like a declining trend in users to a complete explosion. Wow. And that had a positive impact on our revenues too. So that happened in, in May and we haven't looked back since. Wow. Back against the wall, <laughs> but well positioned yeah. and then making some good choices. Yeah. But back to the fundraising, because that was the kind of the context. So I started first day of April. I discussed with investors, like we could wait, not do anything now, hope things will get better at some point and then fundraise. And in the meantime, find a way to survive, possibly for an extended period of time. We felt that even though in the short term we're impacted, it's going to accelerate the trend that you have to train people in a different way. Right. So we should benefit from it long term. And then I decided, okay, that's what we're going with. So let's start fundraising. COVID was also part of your why now. Yeah, it was. And then in May, you get this new contract. Yeah, or just increased use of the platform. Increased use of the platform. Then what happened? I think every founder knows that it's wise to build out relationships between rounds, even mm -hmm. though you don't want to spend all your time. Definitely not. And, and not just after you raise, even though that's when investors want to speak to you. Yeah. Uh, but of course, you build out relationships and then you reach out to them. And, you know, you have your tier one, two and three lists and you approach them. And I was interested in raising from the US because it's the most important market to us now. It's going to be the most important market for us in the future. Yeah. So if we could get a good US investor, that would benefit us. But it's hard to do it. And I've seen data from Dan Glazer, Wilson Sonsini. They, they did a post on how many UK-based companies without US operations, without the VC actually having a UK or European presence, have successfully managed to raise a Series A. It's 2%. 2%. Yeah. It's very yeah. low. So we were part of that. So it's it's very low. And this was during the pandemic. So a lot of the investors we reached out to, some of them I'd met before, even Valley investors. Mm. But, you know, of course, several we hadn't. That's really hard. I think maybe now VCs are getting used to it. I think in April, this was a completely novel thing. Yeah. With Valo, we'd met before on a few occasions, like in London, in Palo Alto. We'd started building our relationship. Were you being proactive or was it coming from their side as well? Both. 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 And it's a funny story, actually. We were introduced via one of the partners at Connect. So they reached out to him. They'd seen us somehow and said, can you introduce us? And I'm going to be in London so I, I can meet him. So Mona, who is one of the partners and who is on my board now, who is a lovely person, a big shout out. And just like Valo, if you want decent people, great investor in the Valley, you should speak to Valo Ventures. All right. <laughs> They're fantastic. I said, I'm really busy as you're always busy and we're based in west london so we're not with everyone else and so i know traveling into the city is like three hours one hour there meeting back like i, I don't have time she said very quickly like i'll come to you and that's rare and you know when someone's willing to come to you you like them a lot more because it shows that they understand you as a founder and they have yeah. empathy with that she came to me and I was in back-to-back, -back, and then I was going off to another meeting, and we had a really interesting conversation. I said, Mona, I'm terribly sorry. I'm going to have to leave. We only had 40 minutes in person. But I'm taking an Uber, 
uh, to this other meeting. Mm-hmm. Do you want to join? Because you're also going to your next meeting. Why don't we continue in the car? So we actually shared an Uber. I dropped her off on the way and we continue that discussion. I think that was part of like our history too of doing things and spending a little bit more time together. And of course, it was funny that it was Uber. She stayed in touch. When I was traveling to the Bay Area, I'd seek them out and say, I'm here, let's meet up. I think that's really important. And I think you can do a lot. If you're looking to race in the US, now it's tricky. So take this advice for what it is. It's worth going out there and meeting people. Someone told me everyone will take the first meeting in the US because they're open-minded and it's very much the paid forward culture. Then the second meeting, unless you have something really important, may not happen, right? In the UK, they don't want to meet you. But once you do get through the door, you're basically in. And then, of course, I ended up speaking to many more in the round as you do. How many? 50. 50, yeah. But I, st- I started with those and I, I closed with Valo. And, you know, that sounds like, oh, great. And then I got sick. And uh, even though I never tested positive for COVID, I had eight days consecutive fever, cough, fatigue. My God. I was basically out. And that was just as they were starting to do commercial DD. And Valo likes to do more DD before term sheets. And they're in Palo Alto. And I was in Sweden at the time. So it was nine hour time difference. I do like these evening calls with them. Obviously, the due diligence lasted longer than my presumed COVID. But it was certainly in a critical moment where I think they were on the fence. Like, mm-hmm. is this convincing enough? And I remember I, I basically crashed in the afternoon or early evening, I'd be on the sofa, I'd be like, okay, there's a call coming up at 8 p.m. where we're going to run through cohort analysis of our customers, pretend everything is well, (laughs) and then like crash after that. Oh my God. I mean, even if you're not sick, due diligence can be an exhausting process. So I feel for you. It's very exhausting. Post-term sheets, how was the process? They were really diligent pre-term sheet, more than others. Generally, a negotiating term sheet was also fine with them. Obviously, it's a huge relief, extremely stressful period leading up to that. And I have a friend who usually says, if you know, you know, and it can be like a place or a bottle of wine or whatever. And I think with fundraising, it's the same. Like those who know, they know what it's like. And And if you haven't fundraised, you don't know. And the closest thing trying to explain it to my team is like, I'm applying for 50 jobs. And for each job, you have X number of interviews and tasks. And basically, they will turn you down. Uh, And you just every time you go into a new interview, even if it's your sixth interview with that employer, you have to give it everything. Because at any given point, you don't give 100%, you're not going to get that job either. So it's really, really, really an exhausting experience. And you care so much. And it's someone coming in and telling you what you're doing isn't good enough and your child is ugly or you know it's it's you know it's got some deficiency uh, and you just keep going and then people only focus on like ah oh, they raced and you raced from we raced from silicon valley investor it's great and yeah. it's easy and it's like i could have gone so many ways i think what was more exhausting was actually the the legal due diligence that followed after almost yeah. because i think at that point You've already spent X amount of time on that fundraising. And then you go through all of the legal vetting and, you know, it's not particularly flexible. And so it's a very different conversation to have. I was, I think I was too frugal, cost conscious going into both maybe my seed round, but more so the series A round. 
where the investor is going to make the company pay for drafting the terms and due diligence and stuff. And as a founder, of course, you hate that, but it's, it's kind of what it is. Uh, if you have a U.S. investor, it's likely going to cost you more because they're going to use U.S. legal counsel that are very expensive. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to keep costs down and stay in control. So I was using my external legal counsel, but a smaller firm and doing a lot of the work myself. That's probably not good advice. You should just like screw it and just like pay the money to have someone run more of that for you. Especially I, had, I don't have co-founders. I didn't have a finance person. I was doing everything myself. And I think it's too taxing to do it. And I would do it differently next time. And I would advise other people, like, just get a good law firm. And in the bigger scheme of things, it doesn't matter that much. Tell me more about the leadership team. And maybe we can work through a leadership team challenge. We went from between seed and A, 10 to 20-ish people. Mm -hmm. Still a very small team. I think a management team when you're 10 is basically, it's, it's not really a management team. Management team at 20 is hardly a management team either, in my view. I think now as we go from like 20, we're now 30, we've added 10 people in two months, we'll go to 40 this year. So we've doubled in, in size in mm -hmm. just a few months. I've been thinking about, okay, what what do we need? Who do we need in like an executive management team? that is building not just for 20 people or 40 people, but for 100 or 200. Like we talked about earlier in the podcast, you kind of, I think a lot of us feel the same way. You end up with a team. It's a little bit based on who you hired first and who was heading up a function. And then you just end up somehow in that top position. And, and some people are more generalists and they've been tasked with doing lots of different things. If you're trying to develop a strong leadership team in your company, what's going to be required of you? I think it's stepping out of my comfort zone. What's your comfort zone? Comfort zone is keep working with the same people that you know really well. That feels comfortable, yeah. Mm -hmm. What is less comfortable, but what I realize is required, is to say, what does the company need in the coming 12, 18, 24 months? That's a great question. How do you answer that? One part is about insight. You, you need insight to say, what got us here is not the same thing that will get us where we need to go. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to make changes. I, as a CEO, will not only have to understand it, I have, I, I have to execute on it and take some uncomfortable decisions too and challenge myself and challenge others to take those decisions. I think my investors have been useful because mm -hmm. they obviously see steps beyond where we are in terms of like the things you have to change or level up or places where you have gaps perhaps in collective experience or capabilities in the team and push you to say, you need to get someone really experienced to build the sales playbook uh, to build that growth engine and then push you on it. And I think Pietro, you know, kudos to you for doing this in some other positions where it's like, no, 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 I don't even want to talk to the person. How do you know it's the best one? You should go out and interview or talk to lots of people that are like amazing. And even if you don't hire them, at least you know what great looks like. I think that's a good piece of advice. And that's again, like being pushed out of your comfort zone. 
So I'm curious to explore with you then, what's the system that you can build whose output is a strong leadership team? So process is one thing. How do you know that you're getting the right people in? You need to have a great process in terms of hiring, for example, or in terms of setting expectations. It goes then all the way back to the company OKRs, for example. Mm -hmm. I work with a framework called Back to the Future. I think Atomico championed it. Mm -hmm. It's setting milestones for where the company needs to be to do the next successful fundraising round. And then you work backwards. Then you align that with the expectations of the people that are going to drive those initiatives. Like if that's a strategic objective for us is to, to build out like a predictable and scalable growth engine. Okay, a VP sales is going to own that. So that's what we're looking for. It, it, it has to be repeatable in what you do. Otherwise, it's not systematic. And then what's scalable, as in you can keep doing this, because ideally this is something that can cascade them down in the organization too. It's important that we're building repeatable, scalable processes. The processes that you have at maybe the leadership team, they might be replicated, right? Mm. So you have a certain way of doing status updates, setting objectives, how you hire and so forth. What else is the system whose output is a great leadership team? Okay, you need to hire people. Then you need to ensure that they're successful. How do you make sure they're successful? What does it take to be successful at EduMe today? Certain characteristics or personality traits that we hire for. Humility, willingness to learn, being proactive, being a team player. I think these things make them mm -hmm. get the most out of others, uh, get the most back for themselves. I think what we have to do proactively is the right coaching, expectation setting, following up, being there, making sure that we're making the advances we want to make course correct as we have to. I don't know where to draw the line between like process and things that you feel you do and, and, and need to do. So process and people, I almost think of them as different ends on a spectrum. Where on the process side, you are empowering the process. You're saying, this is the way you're going to follow it. Mm. Maybe you know a better way. doesn't matter. This is the way we do it. And then the extreme end on people is, I don't care how you do it. Just go ahead and do it. Mm. I'm empowering people. And we know one thing about extremes is that no extreme is ever right. Mm. Right? Mm. It's always a nuance somewhere in the middle. So on the process side, how do I create a set of processes at the senior level that could be used as a guideline down the organization? But there's also a set of behaviors that you're mm. trying to encourage. So mm. we call that culture, right? Culture is a set of behaviors. And when we talk about corporate culture, particularly at a strategic level, we're saying, what are the types of behaviors mm. that I want to encourage that will help me mm. to deliver on my unique value proposition? Mm. Mm. Behaviors that demonstrate humility, they demonstrate a willingness to learn, being proactive, being a team player. So on one level, they're values, but it's how they translate mm. into behaviors. Yeah, yeah. Does that, does that resonate? Yeah, very much so. And I think it, it's, it, it makes it very clear, actually. One can think about that spectrum and we have a certain amount of process, but typically not a vast amount at the stage we're at. And the empowerment is actually much more important of hiring people who has the right set of behaviors, but who can take the company forward. And you can say, we do have these set objectives as a company. It's your job to make sure that we reach them. You come up with the process to get us there. Just mm. make sure that it's scalable. You'd said earlier 
I'm going to have to have an insight in how to go from where we are now into the future. Mm-hmm. So what is your insight and what will you do? The insight is we have to make changes. Mm-hmm. Some of the changes will be hard. Mm-hmm. They will not feel good for me. When you make changes to like your management team, someone who's been there for a really long time has had a profound impact on where we are. And then you say, well, you know what? At this next stage, I think you will continue to have the most impact by focusing on the things that you used to do, but there is not a clear way for you to grow in the hierarchy. Mm. Because management at this stage is not the same thing as management when we were smaller. Right. The challenges, they're very different at a later stage. And so it's not a given that you are the person that's most well-suited to be successful in that position anymore, right? Right. And that's really tough. It's tough. You said you're around 30 people. Yeah. This is the time when you realize that the company is growing faster than the team can develop mm. themselves. Mm. And that there was an expectation that wasn't set at the beginning, which is that one day, even though you're the CMO now or you're the VP of sales now, we might have to hire in above you. Yeah. Of course, no, no one starts a business saying that, right? Like that's not, no. that's not what you say to your first recruits. No, no, you don't. I mean, it's, that's not very appealing. It's not even what you think because you don't know yet. You don't know. But then when you do come to that insight and it's painful, it's a painful insight, I think. Yeah. And, and then you kind of, you still have to go through with it. And I'm sure that you, we end up doing mistakes in that process. But I think the biggest mistake is not doing anything and just hoping that things are just going to work out. And then I think the the collateral damage is just a lot greater because it will impact the entire future of the company potentially. Right. So there's a lot at stake. Yeah, there is. And there's a lot of stake for individuals, but maybe also for teams. And you're very lonely as a founder. You come to these insights. You can't discuss them widely. You end up doing decisions. Almost everyone is lagging in their understanding, like why you're doing it. Like that's a great person or a great team or things have worked and nothing has changed from one day to the next, right? They haven't. So it's just like, well, it's because I'm thinking about where we need to be in a year from now. And then you have this collective conscience of, can it happen again? Is this going to keep happening? Sometimes it, it works really well and other times it, it, it doesn't. And I don't, I think that's another insight is you can try to set things up for success and you can do your very best, but there is no guaranteed outcome that every time you're just going to do things right. And it's okay. That's okay too. If you, at the end of the day, then can look yourself in the mirror and say, well, I don't have to be ashamed. And I know why I did it. Yeah. But when you're in the middle of it, you try to keep sight of it. I think it's easier the more times you do it. Because when you're in it, of course, there are emotions involved too. And it's really stressful. It's stressful. And also, the outcome of your decision isn't the best benchmark for figuring out whether it was a good decision or not. You can, you can make the right decision. and You're right. Right? You know, it's like poker. You can get lucky on a 2-8 unsuited and win, but that doesn't mean it was the right decision to play. And you can have a pair of aces and still mm. lose position. Very, very true. 
and well. the timing aspect is like you take a decision like it's it's going to take time to play out you need to stick with it and believe and not waver too quickly oh maybe maybe that wasn't the right thing to do let's you know unwind rewind you're doing it for the long term not for the short term yeah we you know we talk a lot about in startups the inevitability of making mistakes and i almost feel there's an implicit assumption that, that we're talking about the team but actually it, it absolutely goes for founders too how do you build a leadership team that's tolerant, not just of each other's mistakes, but also of the CEO's mistakes too? Yeah. I think you need mature intellects to do that, where you can look at each other as just people. Right. And not like the CEO and, and, and no one can say anything or talk to them. And it's also on the CEO to show vulnerability, fessing up to mistakes. Absolutely. What is one vulnerability? It is having a grip on your own weaknesses and being able to talk about them openly mm. without breaking down. Mm. And maturity, which I think is the ability to see the nuance between the extremes, is really critical as you're scaling a team. If you have an immature team at scale, mm. oof, mm. that's going to be like the playground. Mm. One thing about vulnerability, I just feel I had to say too, is it feels like there's this inherent conflict between showing vulnerability and shielding the team or right. that's very often how it feels like, right? You don't right. want to talk about like you're about to run out of money or you made mistakes and maybe it's going to make it worse and like who is going to feel better? Well, maybe maybe it would make me feel better, but what about everyone else on the team? It's going to make them feel worse. When they feel worse, they're going to do a worse job. That's going to, that's going to reduce the chance of success. Right. So I think very, very, very often you end up just filtering and shielding the team, including uh, your direct reports from seeing too much, feeling too much so they can stay focused and you just like try to take it on your own shoulders. And that's where I think the conflict comes in with the vulnerability yeah. because it's almost like once you start opening up or showing cracks, you're afraid the whole thing will kind of crumble. That's it. Well, I, I had a great piece of advice from a yoga instructor on this. The question was, how much can you be vulnerable and share in front of the, the class? And you can only share what you've already processed. Mm. What you don't want to do is to use the class as your therapy session yeah, and just yeah. talk about it. I, I think the perfect match is to pair vulnerability with vision. Mm. So vulnerability is, I don't know, I'm struggling and I need your help. But vision is, this is where we're trying to get to. And here's why we really need to do this. Mm. Without the direction piece, all you're left with is, hey, I don't know what we're doing, mm. which is concerning. Mm. So I think you've always got to have that vision of like, this is where we're going. But this is where we're trying to get to. Mm. What an amazing conversation we've had. How are we going to take this forward? What are, you, what are your next steps? Well, we've started making our changes already on the team. We've hired new people in, we've split roles that used to be like one person, let's say two functions. We've split that into two, hired someone into to run one of them. Mm -hmm. We've made other changes too, where we've effectively had people report into a new C-level executive. And I would say we're in the middle of that process actually at this point in time. Yeah. What have been your insights from today? process versus behaviors uh, and how to think about those things a bit more systematically 
these big decisions that we just discussed, maybe even the last point about like vulnerability, you can share things that have been processed, but you wouldn't use your team as your therapist. I think that's good. That's probably why you should really get a founder coach. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for coming on the pod and sharing your story. It was amazing to hear it. How did you enjoy coming on the show? It's great. Really enjoyed it. Anyone else, Dave reaches out to and you're like, ah, I don't know. It's really fun. I really enjoyed it. If you're inspired to learn more about Edgemy, you can do so at edgemy.com, where you'll also find a variety of open positions too. Big kudos to Jacob for being so open and honest. And if you enjoyed this podcast, why not hit subscribe in Apple or follow on Spotify or wherever you're listening so that you can join us next time where we'll go deep with another brave CEO who's willing to be open about the challenges that they face. Until then, stay healthy and safe and catch you next time.